On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, review recent CMS guidance to state agencies on the enforcement of the Medicare regulations, discuss staffing challenges, talk about smoke evacuation in operating rooms, and in our focus segment, talk to Todd Logan with SIS regarding electronic medical records. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. Welcome to episode 152 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for February 27th, 2022. We're recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic and the material provided in this episode is based on information available as of the date of the recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So we're back in very snowy and very cold (laughs) Rochester, Spencerport, New York, after our trip to Hilton Head. I know, and we were going to record a couple episodes, and mm-hmm. the uh, the portable studio we had never made it out of the portable no. studio box that it comes in. Yeah, a lot of other things happened yeah, and came it up. A, it was a it was it was not a real relaxing vacation, but it was it was nice. We were we were looking out on the ocean, yeah. and the weather was beautiful. So you know, we got to spend some time with your sister and brother in law, mm-hmm. which is always mm-hmm. nice to uh, to share our experience down there. Yep. Uh, we were there for ten days, one of the longer trips that we had. Yep. We'll head down there again in the in the fall, and hopefully it'll be a little bit better weather. And it is very cold in the studio right now, isn't it? It's really, really cold <laughs> in the studio. I've got extra, like a blanket over my shoulders, and yeah. I turn the heat on, but which is helping a little bit. But um, it'll take you know, a while. We won't, by the time we're we're done here, we better talk <laughs> warm fast. up. <laughs> <laughs> but we have a lot going on. Um, I will uh, say that uh, it's been. I mean, we always talk about how busy it has been, but um, you know the uh, uh, the survey activity has picked up quite a yeah. bit. And uh, interesting note too, I'll, I'll make is that the survey results, especially a non deem status survey, seem to be coming back slower than normal. Mm. So uh, I, I know that the activity is going on and it's it's continuing, but uh, there are some real challenges I think everybody is having in trying to keep up with things. And Sue, one of the the things that we enjoy most about our involvement with the ASC podcast mm-hmm. is our weekly drop in sessions on Saturday mornings. Yep. Those that are not familiar with it, if you're a patron member of the ASC podcast, you uh, have the opportunity to join us on uh, Saturday mornings now. it's Every once in a while, we change it around, but most of the time, it's on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. We've been getting some pretty good crowds lately, you know, up to 10, mm-hmm. sometimes 12 people on uh, our weekly sessions, It's uh, which is pretty good. It gives people an opportunity to ask any questions, to uh, give us a lot of feedback on the, on the podcast. We mm-hmm. get a lot of great ideas. Some of the material that we have this week. Uh, came yep. about as a result of some of those discussions. Mm-hmm. And some of those things we've been talking about on the weekly uh, drop-in sessions are the No Surprises Act. Uh, Jim Masters, actually, our life safety surveyor, has been stopping in every uh, every once in a while to talk mm-hmm. about life safety issues from a survey standpoint. Yeah, and Lori's almost always there, Lori Rodericks. Right, about And Anne is, is there most of the time. So and John, of course, always there. That's right. And, and you, um, yep. and you know, and we've been talking a lot about the vaccine mandate. It just seems 
seems to be absorbing an awful lot of our time. Hopefully that'll start, um, you know, dissipating as, as the pandemic come, turns into an endemic, which I'm, mm-hmm. I'm hoping will happen soon. Uh, we have, we're always talking about survey issues because, you know, between any of us that are talking either being a surveyor, being surveyed, uh, or just, you know, we in our company, you know, helping organizations through a survey, uh, there's just always questions about the survey activities. Um, and I think, Sue, one of the biggest things we've been talking about a lot is staffing. I know you're going to mention that in our upcoming segment here. But it's been a lot of fun. I, I'm enjoying those sessions. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, it, it has to be fun since some of them have gone for two hours. And <laughs> people giving up two hours on a Saturday is uh, is uh, quite, a, quite a thing. And I do want to mention, though, sometimes people just pop in for the first half hour, for an hour. So I don't want to scare anybody to think you're committing two hours of your Saturday oh, if you pop in point. at all. <laughs> that's <laughs> so. right. Yeah. It's a, that's why we call it a drop-in session. Mm-hmm. You can just drop, drop in for in whatever portion. Yeah. And most, yeah I mean, actually, it's interesting. A lot of people do stick around for the whole yeah, time, most, but, yeah. uh, but, but you, you certainly don't have, don't have to. And just drop in, ask a question if you're in a hurry. Mm-hmm. We had somebody had to drop off quickly, so we took their question first. But uh, yeah. it's, it's yeah, what I really like about it is that interaction that we have mm-hmm. with uh, with each other. So. Yeah. Well, let's move on to uh, the most recent news. CMS notified the state agencies in a uh, quality, safety, and oversight policy memo, memo to the states and regions uh, about their plans to strictly enforce the regulations and the conditions for coverage at the state agency level or will stop funding the state agencies for doing surveys. So this is a pretty drastic step. I couple reasons for this. One of the things that uh, has been noted is that not all the state agencies have been uh, as rigorous as perhaps the, the accreditation organizations have been mm-hmm. in their uh, surveys of uh, amatory surgery centers and, uh, well, or hospitals and nursing homes for that matter. And as a result of that, uh, CMS is, is starting to, to crack down on that, just as they did with the accreditation organizations, which we've talked about quite extensively over the years um, on the podcast. Just a little bit of background. So the Department of Health and Human Services entered into agreements with the states under what's called Section 1864 of the Social Security Act. And under the act, uh, states have to certify whether or not providers and suppliers within the state comply with all the applicable definitions and requirements under the act. Now, the state is responsible for surveying for the purpose of certifying to the secretary the compliance or non-compliance of providers and suppliers of services and resurveying such entities at such time and manner as the secretary may direct. What this means is that um, CMS will tell the state when they have to survey uh, a surgery center and uh, what they should be looking for and also, um, you know, notifying CMS of any uh, deficiencies that they they identify. And each state must apply the appropriate conditions for participation, conditions for coverage, and other requirements for participation in accordance with CMS regulations and, and instructions. Now, what that means for us is that they enforce the conditions for coverage and the interpretive guidelines for ASCs. And CMS allocates, this is the important part, CMS allocates funding to each state for the reasonable cost of performing the functions specified uh, into this 1864 agreement and for Medicare's fair share of costs related to Medicare facilities. So this is uh, an interesting threat. So basically what they have indicated is that uh, CMS is going to start keeping track of, of situations in which the states are not enforcing the regulations. Now, I think the obvious reason for this coming out at this time is because there have been some states that have indicated that they're not going to infer- enforce the vaccine mandate uh, that CMS has put in place for Medicare certified organizations. Mm -hmm. So it was from this QSO, as we refer to it, or the Quality Safety and Oversight uh, Memo, uh, and we'll give a link to this, that is notifying state agencies that they're going to have to enforce it. So this is going to be interesting, Sue, because, of course, there's lawsuits Mm -hmm. going on. Um, You know, some states, I'm not going to mention them right here, have basically flat out said that they're not going to enforce this, and and CMS is saying, okay, you know, if you don't enforce it, we're not going to pay you for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we've also talked over the years, especially in our conferences, that CMS does have the ability to actually do surveys themselves. Now, they don't really have the resources to do that, but it is possible for CMS to come out and do a survey absent the state agency. So it'll be, going to be very interesting and see, see how this uh, pans out. During our this week's uh, this past week's uh, drop-in session, a uh, question came up about uh, surgical smoke evacuation. Sue, when you did a little bit of research on it, do you want to – Kind of give us some uh, updates on that? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, kind of review this. So um, according to NIOSH, sur- there are, are 
several issues, obviously, with surgical smoke. Um, it can obstruct the surgeon's view. The smoke contains toxic gases, viruses, and bacteria. There have even been cases of HPV being transmitted through surgical smoke. Um, and, and this has been a big issue for mm-hmm. ARN. ARN has yep. been, um, you know, uh, pushing lobbying, legislation, pushing, yeah. lobbying for a lot of legislative mm-hmm. changes. And you see it a lot in the ARN uh, magazines and, and mm-hmm. uh, some of their uh, uh, guidance that have been provided to nurses. That's true. Um, and some short-term issues can be eye, nose, and throat irritation, headaches, cough, congestion, um, asthma, or asthma-like symptoms. And now they're... We don't really know what the long-term effects, but I'm sure that they they could be fairly serious. Right. So although LEV or local exhaust ventilation is widely recommended, um, in a survey, only 47% of respondents um, reported consistent use. And 90% of laser respondents and 98% of electrosurgery respondents used laser masks or surgical masks, which do not provide um, the appropriate protection. So I suggest that you check out the CDC site for the NIOSH recommendations um, for, for what you can be doing to protect yourself. And in the meantime, you know, the, anything you can do to join up with either AORN or, or your local or state um, agencies to kind of lobby for some legislation would be great. And the states with surgical smoke-free legislation include, um, let's see, Colorado, Started in 2019, Rhode Island in 2018. The newest states that are going smoke-free are Kentucky, Oregon, and Illinois, and those are um, within the next year or two. I guess actually uh, Kentucky and Illinois. It looks like they started um, the beginning of this year, and then Oregon will be um, January of next year. And I believe that Illinois, from a conversation we had during one of our drop-in sessions, I think Illinois has held off the enforcement of this until March 31st or until April 1st. So uh, if you're in that state. And then other states have had uh, legislation uh, introduced, Connecticut, Georgia, Iowa, New Jersey, Utah, and Tennessee, to name a few. Mm -hmm. So keep an eye out what's going on in your states. Uh, Certainly, if you're in a state that that requires it, you need to make sure you have such a system in place. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, at least look into ways that you can protect yourself. Right. Uh, We wanted to just kind of reinforce a couple things that, uh, again, came up during a conversation during one of our drop-in sessions about the No Surprises Act. Now, we'll put a link into, uh, as we do frequently, the overview of basic rules under the uh, No Surprises Act. But it is important to remember that there is a a recommended uh, sign. So we have to post notification to your patients about their rights under the No Surprises Act. But we really haven't made a big deal about this. So uh, CMS has provided guidance, has provided an example. Uh, we'll link to it again in our uh, show notes. But we have to remember that we have to post it on our websites if you have them. You need to provide uh, a sign in the waiting area, a place where your uh, patients will likely see it. Uh, and it appears that they're really recommending that you provide it uh, to the patients in like that pre-op packet or whatever packet you provide that includes your your uh, patient rights and responsibilities mm-hmm. and notification of ownership and, and things like uh, what your advanced directive policy is. So uh, again, just quick reminder here to uh, make sure that you're up to date with what's going on with the No Surprises Act. You can refer back to some of our previous uh, podcasts on this issue. And again, we'll provide a link to the information, the most recent information that's available on this area. And I wanted to talk a little bit about staffing issues um, and especially how it relates to travel nursing. Um, This has obviously been an ongoing issue um, that it's been made worse by the pandemic. And it's one of the things we actually were talking about on one of our Saturday morning drop-in sessions. So while bringing in an agency nurse can help to provide relief to an overworked staff, it can make the problem worse if the staff feels undervalued because the agency nurse can be making quite a lot more money than they are. We've heard about situations in hospitals where the staff actually, when they find out that the travel nurse might be making two and three times, sometimes more, what they're making, where they've decided to leave and they become a travel nurse and they can even return to the same hospital making you know, several making, like I said, two to three times what they were making before. And that just obviously makes the problem worse. Um, So Becker's ASC review from February 21st, 2022, had a short article on the issue of staff staff retention challenges due to both the travel nurse pay rates and also the sign-on bonuses that are being offered by many hospitals right now. So Deb Meyer, an administrator of Skyline Surgery Center, Stress that finding innovative ways to increase staff loyalty is so important right now and also urged people to lobby for caps on travel nursing pay. 
Some things that our center has implemented are stressing work-life balance, empowering staff and physicians with education and inclusion on dis- and, you know, decision-making to make them feel more part of that team. Um, other ideas that we've heard um, in talking to our centers and, as I said, with our drop-in sessions, um, allowing creative scheduling. If you've got a slow day, let somebody leave early yeah. if that's possible. If people want to, you know, trade off their shifts for a certain reason, you know, be open to that. Just anything you can do to let people see see the benefit of working with, you know, a smaller group. You know, doing your best to make the fat staff feel included and part of the team. Effective mentoring, pairing new staff with more experienced staff as kind of a work buddy that can help. On two ways. For one thing, you've got a lot of older nurses that are maybe considering retiring. You want to gather that knowledge as much as you can before they leave. So a newer nurse working with them, that could be helpful. And and plus, the more bonded they feel, the less likely they're going to, you know, go someplace. You know, I think one of the uh, things that we have found over the many years that we've been doing this is the more a staff person feels connected with other people in the organization, the more that you provide them some type of education and one-on-one mentoring. Mm-hmm. I, I know we use that term a lot, but um, it, where where somebody works with another person for a period of time, not just once, you know, but, and then, you know, turn that person after they've been working there mm-hmm. for a while into a mentor, you know, spread mm-hmm. that that knowledge. They get uh, really but, involved in the culture of your organization right. and, and then it'll take a lot more to lure them away where you can't really compare financially necessarily. Right. Well, and there's so many opportunities in a surgery center to do other things to mm-hmm. you know, get involved in quality improvement, infection control, yeah. uh, become an employee, you know, a health mm-hmm. nurse, for example, monitor that. Yeah. Um, and there's just a lot of opportunities. And who knows, you might find, uh, you know, a diamond in the rough there, somebody that mm-hmm. might eventually want to become a nurse manager yeah. Um, yeah. in your organization. Start, you know, creating that, um, that you know, a, a staff that really, really works together. Yeah, and, it's really and also, passionate about it. And and the education, yeah. providing education, maybe paying for them to go to um, conferences, right. you know, things to make them, to, to just help them really see that benefit. And give them references to our staff. Uh, well, not only the staff uh, episodes that we do, but for uh, full episodes if mm-hmm. they want a lot mm-hmm. deeper knowledge here. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we reached another pro- milestone here, about 37,000 downloads this week. We've had oh, our okay. largest uh, number of downloads in one month in the month of January 2022. So I, hmm. I, we're becoming popular. Uh, well, even more popular, I guess. So it's a, but again, you know, avail yourself and your staff of this opportunity to learn more about this industry. And I saw a study done by researchers at Washington University School of Medicine and the Veterans Affairs St. Louis Healthcare System that involved over 150,000 patients who had survived COVID, and they found. Um, quite an increased risk of mental health disorders. So this was true even in patients who had not been hospitalized. Patients were 60% overall more likely to suffer lingering mental and emotional problems in the year following their infection. Um, and this was not seen in other diseases like the flu. So it's not a matter of just that you've been sick. Yeah. Um, and some specific uh, percentages, they were 46% more likely to have suicidal thoughts, 55% increase in antidepressant use, 80% more likely to have neurocognitive declines such as forgetfulness and confusion, and 34% more likely to develop opioid use disorders. So it's just, you know, this whole other aspect to it that I think, you know, people just have to be aware of. And I know, you know, a lot of healthcare workers have been infected. So, you know, just monitor yourself as well, yeah. I guess, you know, make, make sure colleagues. you give some yeah. self-care and, and address these issues if you're noticing them. Yeah. I, I know I saw statistics, so I, we didn't, uh, I didn't put it in here, but what something like 25% of healthcare workers have left mm-hmm. the healthcare field in yeah. the last two years. Yeah. I mean, that number seems pretty unbelievable to me. I don't know where I saw that, yeah. uh, but I mean, we know that it's a high number. I'm just not sure that mm-hmm. it's absolutely 25%. But And um, people struggling. Like we've, I mean, yeah. this is just anecdotal, but we've seen a few cases of, you know, drug diversion yeah. and, and people, you know, being in a bad situation found in the center. So, you know, it just, it, it ties into this. Yeah. And recognize that it can happen in any organization. Mm-hmm. So. So a couple other things I just wanted to kind of bring to everybody's attention. Um, we ran into a situation or we heard about a situation recently where an organization almost had an immediate jeopardy uh, because of uh, of using a single-dose drug on multiple patients. They did everything right 
if it were indeed a multiple mm-hmm. dose Labeling vial, and all that they labeled everything thing, and did it. They did. They yeah. pulled it outside of the patient care mm-hmm. area. But uh, when the surveyor looked at it, it said, wait a minute, this is a, um, a, a single, single dose vial. Mm-hmm. And upon investigation, what, what happened is uh, this organization uh, was having problems getting this particular drug and were only able to get single dose vials. And the staff didn't realize that it was single dose. They had always been using multi-dose. Mm-hmm. They just mm-hmm. assumed that horrible, horrible word assumed yeah. uh, that it was multi-dose. And they, it, luckily it was not very serious in this particular situation and the surveyor was very kind. Uh, but you know, you can end up in a pretty serious situation mm-hmm. there. So when you are uh, purchasing drugs, make sure that you take a very close look at that label. And, you know, that's what those uh, look alike, sound alike, uh, high alert drug labels yeah. are, you yeah. know, expiration dates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially now if it's uh, single dose and, mm-hmm. and you're used to using multi-dose, be yeah. very, very careful about that. Maybe, you know, put up a little a little note, maybe even do it in service because right. it's not just this. You could have medication that you're getting in a different concentration right. or another medication that, that serves the same purpose as one that you can't get anymore. So be really sure to educate your staff anytime there's a change like that. Well, and even just the look of some of these vials, mm-hmm. too, can be uh, surprising to people if they aren't used to seeing or if they, they get a new vial that looks like another type of mm-hmm. a vial and, mm-hmm. and it has completely different attributes. So. Yeah. And then just lastly in this segment, we recently in New York State, uh, New York State issued a letter um, that reminded uh, providers in New York that nurses cannot uh, reposition a C-arm. Uh, or, of course, we know that they can't push a, uh, uh, the button to, to operate the C-arm. Uh, but even moving a C-arm in the state of New York is, is not appropriate uh, and doesn't fall under their scope of practice. Uh, so the reason I bring this up, I know not all of our listeners, of course, are from New York. Uh, I think New York people pretty much knew that. But it did remind me of the fact that you, when you're having somebody other than the, uh, the rad tech or the, uh, the physician moving that, uh, C-arm around. Make sure that the scope of practice in your state allows that to be done yeah. by an, uh, an individual other than those two positions. So just a, a quick little note there on that area. So, Sue, we, uh, our sponsor, of course, for many years has been uh, Surgical Information Systems, and uh, we have an opportunity every couple months to uh, bring a, a speaker on to uh, talk about various topics. And it was time we've, – we've been focusing a little bit more on electronic medical records recently because mm-hmm. we – there's been an increase, a dramatic increase in the number of organizations that are switching to electronic medical records um, as well as just a, a feeling that this is one of the solutions that moving into the future as we move into more uh, value-based care, as we need more and more information for quality improvement um, purposes. And as our quality improvement, our quality assurance and performance improvement programs become more complex, we need information that can only really be achieved by having electronic medical record. So uh, our dear friend uh, Todd Logan, who's been on this uh, this uh, podcast many times over the years, uh, we spoke with him about a month ago, I believe, mm-hmm. and uh, he, we, we got into a lot of different topics. So let's take a short break and we'll come back and we'll uh, interview uh, Todd Logan about electronic medical records. When it comes to the financial outcomes of your ambulatory surgery center, it has never been more important to maximize revenue, tighten the time to bill and collect payment, and reduce denials from payers. Yet without a keen focus on your revenue cycle, it can be difficult to achieve the results your center needs to remain profitable. The revenue cycle experts at Surgical Information Systems can help. With revenue cycle services from SIS, you can improve the financial health and performance of your ASC. SIS Revenue Cycle Services takes care of all aspects of the revenue cycle, including compliant coding based on documentation, claim preparation and submission, claim management, accounts receivable management, billing follow-up, month-end reconciling and closing processes, standard and customized reporting, and patient portion due and or balance management. By doing the heavy lifting, SIS Revenue Cycle Services leaves you to do what you do best, provide affordable, high-quality care. In addition to managing your revenue cycle, the SIS-RCS team uses a five-step process to monitor, analyze, and make recommendations for improvement to your revenue cycle performance. More than 50 ASCs enjoy these results from SIS Revenue Cycle Services every month. Faster claim submission, shorter time to pay, improved AR follow-up, 
higher net collections, expert coding to meet exact payer requirements, and an overall more consistent revenue cycle. Visit sysfirst.com to learn how the revenue cycle experts at SIS can deliver improved financial health for your ASC. Again, that's sysfirst.com to learn more about SIS revenue cycle services. So this is uh, John Gailey and Stu Cronkite. We're here with our dear friend, Todd Logan, who is the Chief Growth, Growth Officer over at Surgical Information Systems. Welcome. John, Sue, thank you so much for having me. Really excited to have the opportunity to talk to you today. So it's been about six months since you and I have talked. And uh, I can't even remember what we talked about the last time, but it's always kind of in the same uh, realm. And of course, uh, we we do want to continue. Uh, we we do want to, uh, as always, uh, recognize SIS as our uh, our sponsor and uh, very dear friend of our organization. We uh, we've enjoyed our relationship with you, and of course, the uh, the information that you have provided has been very helpful to our listeners. So today, we we thought we would circle back and talk about EMR again. I seems to me like we're talking about a lot a lot about EMR now but it is indeed one of the uh, hot topics in the industry and and Todd you know when we look at our clients over at ambulatory healthcare strategy still less than half of our clients are on an electronic medical record so why don't we start by talking about where you see the industry is going and uh, how much longer those organizations can stay on paper before they start running into uh, some significant issues if they aren't already yeah. Oh boy, John. Yeah. This is uh, really excited to talk about this, this topic today because, you know, we're very familiar working in the industry. And when you say the term, or when you say the figure 50%, that's actually a pretty high figure. So I think what we're seeing is that we've always said that the ASC market is probably clipping along at about a 20 to 25% penetration. That's a figure we've always used. And, yeah. and part of that stems from, right. We all, we were all in the industry when hospitals, uh, when practice, uh, when practices had that meaningful use stimulus or that right. legislation mm -hmm. that urged them along, nudged them along and put financial and incentives. To do yeah, that. they had financial incentives to do that. We've never had that in the ASC industry. So this has really had to have been organic growth. So when we're looking at those figures, I think what's changed and even John, I would even say in the last six months or last 12 months in that when we're working with a de novo facility, and there's more and more de novo facilities out there. When we're working with a de novo yeah. facility, we're seeing about an 80% rate of centers that are opening up with an EMR. They're not building, they have no provision for paper, we call it, right? They're yeah. not building extra square footage where they have to have a records room. That doesn't, that doesn't make them money. They don't need it. Um, right. And I think that's and what they know it's going to go away eventually anyway. So absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we're seeing that, but I think we're seeing, yeah, you know, we've had tremendous success with, with our, with our product. Um, you know, it's, they're getting a lot easier to use. They're getting a lot easier to deploy. So all of the leading solutions are cloud-based now. And, and that's a, that's a major advantage too, because if you think about it in the old client server world, you'd have a significant hardware investment, right? It wasn't uncommon when you were having a, a $30,000 server that you had to institute and you had to have somebody on site and be able to do all the integrations and all those works and hook up all the printers and et cetera. So the fact that it's cloud-based makes the deployment a lot easier and a lot smoother, uh, a lot more predictable. And, and safer so too. that's and safer and, from a cybersecurity yeah, standpoint. We we can get into that as a separate topic, John, if we want to talk about yeah, the, as far as the advantages of cloud, which, yeah, I definitely want to expound on that for, for some of the listeners today. But but the other thing, too, that we're seeing is, is just, I think we've hit that tipping point that people are mm -hmm. realizing. It always used to be that, you know, we'd go out and say, I'm going to adopt an EMR when the government makes me. That used yeah. to be such a prevailing conversation. We'd knock on the doors and that's what people would say. And I got a shiny new one. And they'd say, well, you know, the government hasn't made me. And uh, doctor one, doctor once told me, he said, uh, paper's cheap and I get the pens free from a drug rep. So I, I don't need EMR. You can't <laughs> yeah. sell me on the fact that it's going to be cheaper. So yeah. so we'd have we'd have that battle. But all the while, right, I think we saw that there was there was an aversion just to the whole concept of EMR. Because the doctor deployed one during meaningful use in the practice. Um, they had to use one at the hospital, but the ASC was kind of the safe haven where they didn't have yeah. to use an EMR and they didn't like them. But, right. but all the while in the last decade or so, we saw all these 
still clinical technology. So maybe it was a, a, a plug-in piece that did a pre-op questionnaire or did a survey or did patient texting or did some um, patient tracking, some other modules that would plug in. But next thing you knew, you almost had an EMR, right? You had, yeah. so there wasn't, there wasn't an aversion to adopting um, some of the clinical technologies. It was just concept of a full EMR that there was a resistance to. So we're finally, I think we've hit that tipping point though, where people are looking at it and saying, well, now well, that strategy worked for a little while, but now I have six different vendors. None of them talk to each other. I just want yeah. one repository, one solution to be able to handle all these functions. Yeah, and I, I think it, it's important to note, too, that the quality metrics that we need in order to work with, you know, CMS, in other words, the quality reporting requirements, uh, the quality metrics that our payers are shortly going to be requiring us if they aren't already, our ability to uh, to get involved in big contracts, especially if you're looking at uh, doing some bundled fees, you know, the, the, uh, the, the payers and the uh, third-party administrators and those self-funded insurance programs with various uh, employer groups, you know, they want to have data. They want to know that they're getting, getting good value for their money. And you're just not going to be able to get that type of data uh, from a paper system. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a, I love this line, John, maybe you've heard it before, but as a consultant quoted years ago, uh, the statement was, if you're not able to do case costing at your surgery center, you're not managing it, you're babysitting it. And, and yeah. it just rings true. And, and with, yeah, you know, with reimbursements the way they are, with rising expenses, if you don't, if you can't really push a button or do an analysis to know what your cost is of these procedures, and then be able to go and negotiate, not only just for a, a regular grouper contract, but as you said, if you're getting into more complex contracting, um, and and you need to do bundles, for example, and you need to figure out what the anesthesia portion is going to be, what the physician mm -hmm. portion is going to be, what your post-op recovery bundle aspect is going to be, if you don't know the cost of your OR, you're really at an extreme disadvantage when you're going into these negotiations. And really doing that from, if you're not doing that point of care documentation, so you can really manage not only all of your implant costs of what's actually being used, but all the, uh, uh, all the supply costs, that's really going to be challenging to try and do that from a paper-based system post-case, just to have somebody dedicated to aggregating all that information. So yeah, yeah, yeah again, it's, um, yeah, it sounds trite to say, but I mean, they always say data is the new is the new oil, right? Everybody's yeah. pursuing the data, and it's not only for payers, but also just for improving operations, looking, managing as far as your patient relationships, your surgeon relationships, all these components just drive drive better outcomes from the surgery center. I think that's the that's where we find ourselves today, and even as consumers of technology, right? That that's what we need. We want not only ease of use. But we also we we're also just grown accustomed to having deeper analytics and deeper information and insights yeah. on what our information systems can deliver us. Right, and be able to take that data and make it actionable too, which is the other issue that I think we find a lot is that you have a lot of information. Uh, your colleague over at SIS Amit talked a little bit about that. You know, we got tons of information. How do we actually make it relevant? Yeah. To us? And yeah. so, th but that does get me to another point: is that we do a a number of startups. And the challenge that we always have over at Ambitory Healthcare Strategies is that convincing these owners that they just can't port their practice management system over to the ASC. Uh, and the other challenge that we're having recently is these hospital joint ventures where the hospital says, don't worry, you can use our system over at the hospital. So uh, why don't you talk a little bit about, uh, well, first of all, a question that's often asked to me is, why are there so few systems that are focused exclusively on ASCs? That's always been an interesting topic in itself. And then go that extra step and talk about, you know, why you do want to have something that's designed for an ASC uh, and, and what are those additional advantages you get from it? Yeah, I think, again, we've been in this industry long enough where we've seen other systems um, and I think there just has been some of this consolidation in the market. So not really not dissimilar from the hospital market where it's really just distilled down to a couple gigantic players from providing information technology. So I think we're seeing maybe something similar that's that's transpired in the in the ASC space that when you have a couple of really mature and um, you know reliable vendors that it's really hard to to break in as a as a new vendor. So we've been seeing, We've been probably seeing that play out as far as the market dynamics, but yeah, when answering your question, I mean, you, when you look at this and you look at 
you know, I have the, I had, um, <laughs> so I had the privilege of working simultaneously as an administrator for a multi-specialty surgery center doing eyes and, and urology was a case mix. And then at the same time, I was managing the urology center or the urology practice, right? Mm-hmm. So that was always the question. Hey, we're using this system over here at our urology practice. We're using this system over here at our eye practice. Why can't, why can't we just throw that in? It's, yeah. it's a computer. Um, you can enter some information. You can get a claim out the door. But it it'll was be so really, easy. Yeah, it'll be yeah. So easy. And, and I get it. I get the magic of that. You want to have one system. You don't want to have to learn a new system. It's a, it's a challenge. But yeah. the first thing you have to look at is that you know a practice based system is really made for one encounter, right? It's made just yeah. for that encounter with, hey, I went in and I had this kind of procedure done. I had this level of a visit, for example. But as as you and I both know, I mean, the surgical process. An episode of surgical care is just so much more complex. You have multiple phases of care, and then you have different dynamics or different aspects that go into that. So I always and say- a lot more people involved in the process. So many more people. And sign off on it. A- absolutely. So many more people. It's just the, the dynamics is just so different. So I, I like to say that you know, a litmus test of, of when I'm looking at a system and saying, will this work, right? It, it, you know, there are some specialties where it might work, right? If I'm running a GI center and a GI clinic, maybe there's a system that works for both. Um, so maybe there is some crossover. But if I say, you know, I want to utilize a system where I can manage all my phases of care to be able to do QAPI studies, to be able to do reporting out of the solution to manage my patient outcomes, uh, as well as being able to be able to push a button and get a case costing report. That's really the the minimum that I need from an ASC management system. And then layer on top of that, how are my surgeons going to enter their information? How are they going to integrate their their op reports? How are they going to sign off on orders? How are they going to be able to do their meds reconciliation? How is anesthesia going to interact with the system? So you can look at it for so so many different layers, but it's just not what a practice system was built to do. It was really built for that patient encounter that was really a 15, 30 minute visit in that you're going to, that we're all familiar with in that, in that practice. Just like our systems are not meant. I'll be the first to tell you when I, I've had this conversation a hundred times, Hey, we love your system in the ASC. Um, can't we just put this into our practice? Can yeah. we just put your system into our practice? And I said, I think you're going to be really disappointed, you know, stick yeah. to stick to a system that's going to really work in your practice. That's dedicated yeah. for that. Our systems are exclusively built for the surgery center. Talk a little bit about um, hospital because you know, there are uh, so a lot of lots going on obviously in the hospital industry right now. There's you know the the on, ongoing uh, hospital physician joint ventures uh, where the hospital comes in and says I can solve all of your problems here. I can even take care of your tech. Or uh, the situation where a hospital is purchasing a surgery center exclusively and keeping it as an ASC from a uh, from a licensure stand- and certification standpoint, uh, but you know obviously has to run it differently. Have you had any uh, experience with those types of situations? We have. We, we, obviously, we have, and we're seeing more and more of them. Right? It's it's not going to go away. It's only going <laughs> to get more intense as far as investment from the hospital side into the surgery yeah. centers. Um, you know as. <laughs> As the HOPD market started to dry up a decade ago, after we saw that that movement from HOPD back to freestanding, especially the hospitals, when the payment model popped yeah. in and said that you're going to get paid the same amount. Which was yes, absolutely. So once, yeah, one, and, and hospitals they don't want to see that revenue base go away, so they're going to become more and more involved in that. And and we see we have this conversation all the time. So it's it's a lot of the same conversation. So two things that I say: are, are there instances where where a hospital system works in a surgery center, sure, I've seen it work, but not not as often as you would think, especially if it's going to be freestanding, especially if the surgeons are going to have, if there's going to be multiple surgeon, surgeon surgical offices or surgeons involved in it, if they're going to be equity holders in the facility as well, like a true joint venture is going to be, it's still going to come down to what what is my profitability for this case? How can I drive more profitability out of this? And it, we're just not seeing these hospital systems. I'm going to sound like a broken record coming back, hitting it, pushing a button, getting a, a detailed case costing report to being able to see yeah. what the cost is of each surgeon, what the profitability is of each surgeon. And then the other aspect of it that we see is that 
you know, as we all know, and this is why surgeons love surgery centers, is they can have better production at a surgery center that they can bring more cases and put more cases through, is that you do not want to, the cardinal sin of any EMR is asking a surgeon, asking the circulator, asking all the clinicians who are involved to take 20 minutes to document a 10-minute case, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's that's just what we're not seeing. You know, those hospital systems, and we as an organization, we have a hospital business. We have solutions for the hospital market. They're different. It's a completely separate product than we have yeah. for our ASCs because it is much more complex. And we're not asking our hospital system to come in and be able to enable 10-minute documentation for, for a cataract procedure, for... ENT procedures for diff- various procedures that really take it that are very short in duration, be able to deliver all that uh, all that necessary information. So that's really where we see that delineation, and and it's a it's you know it's common. I, I probably have this conversation um, at least a couple times a month, if not every week, of one of the new joint ventures saying we're just going to put in our hospital system. Yeah, talk a little bit about the the nursing documentation because one one of the quickest ways to lose the buy-in from your staff is by telling them that they're going to have, and this goes both for the hospital systems that are coming into the surgery center, but also making sure that that implementation uh, goes well. Um, so let's just dialogue a little bit about, you know, the, the, the needs of the nurses and how uh, a good EMR designed well, you know, specifically for ASCs can, can help. Yeah. So uh, first, first place to start, it's got to be quick. It's got to yeah. keep pace. Um, we, we've incorporated in our solution, one of the things, the two things that I think that why our system has been so successful in the market, um, it can keep up with the pace of clinicians documenting even short cases Mm -hmm. fully configurable, right. And can be configured essentially on the fly. If you want to change the layout, if you want to change the layout of your forms, you can do that on the fly. You don't have to call the vendor to do that. It doesn't take three weeks. Mm -hmm. You don't have to pay an extra cost you as a super user can do that and go in and configure it and change things around because think about it. Think about the, the old way of documenting the, the paper forms were never done. You're always right. making, <laughs> you're always making changes to those and reprinting yeah. them off, whether it's discharge mm-hmm. instructions or this pre-op, whether it was, you know, 15 years ago, entering conditions for coverage or now being a uh, COVID test. Have you been exposed to COVID? Whatever the yeah. questions might be, yeah. All these things are changing. So you have to be able to, to real-time update the system. So it has to be highly configurable and it has to be highly intuitive and just the performance has to has to be there. Otherwise, to your point, it'll cause it it cause more frustration for the for the clinicians, for the nurses, for the surgeons, anesthesia, for all the stakeholders. And, mm-hmm. and that's where you're not going to see the great utilization of it. We've we've incorporated a lot of charting, charting by exception in there as well. So let me throw out an example, right? So patient positioning for any arthroscopy case or for a cataract case. So you have this documentation where 95% of the time, it's always going to be the same, same patient positioning and the same positioning aids that are used um, within that solution. So we'll just go ahead and, and pre uh, add that charting by exception. So you can change it on the fly if it, if it varies from that. But when you open your charting documentation, so your interop documentation, for example, you might see a chart that's already has 65% completion on it. And then you're just correcting or updating some of those elements. So I think that's where we've seen where there's been a lot of success in being able to make certain that, um, you know, again, the first question that people ask is, I can't have this system slow me down. So if you're going to tell me that this is going to take me five extra minutes to document, then the conversation is, is going to end there. And I think that's where we've been successful. And I do think we have to be careful sometimes with the charting by exception that that you're really looking it over, that you're not, that you're making sure that it does apply to your specific case. But I do yeah. agree with you. It makes yeah. it so much easier. You don't want to constantly be putting in information that you don't feel like you have to really yeah, but just make just a note to make sure that people are you know what, Sue, aware that's of what's a, that's going a, in. That's a great note, and and I'm very clear and I'm very mm-hmm. careful on the words that I choose. We're not doing templating, right? Yeah, We're right, not doing right. templating. Exactly. We're doing charting by exception. So yeah. mm-hmm. we want to make that distinction. And, and again, we've had we've had vigorous discussions with surveyors before on this, mm-hmm. as far as you know what what can and can't you do, and we have a fairly high level of confidence based on the surveyors that we've worked with in the past that 
hey, what you guys are doing is the right way, the way that you've structured it, that you've enabled your system to work, that you can do that you can do um, some of this charting by exception. But so there's going to be a lot of areas in the chart that you can't do that, right? I can't, I can't pre-chart or I can't put in charting by exception that we've done we've done a the safe surgery checklist or that we've signed off yeah. on location of mm-hmm. surgery. We're not going to enable that, but right. there's other elements, like I said, some positioning that are mm-hmm. common mm-hmm. to the procedure. So that's a great point, Sue, and, and something that we educate our users on just to make sure that they're in compliance, that they're that they're they're that they're following all the best not only best practices, but mm-hmm. uh guidelines too when incorporating an EMR. Yeah, and yeah. being so customizable I think really helps too because you know it, it's so frustrating to have a form that doesn't fit what you're trying to do so that you're always kind of, you know, leaving, putting NA or, you know, something like that. So it's great that you can change the form to fit exactly what you're doing. And as we know, with all the regulations changing yeah. right now, Daylight. like you mentioned, yeah. yes, <laughs> there's different yeah. things you have to capture all the time. So which country do we have great. to include yes. this, uh, this week? <laughs> <laughs> Is Ebola yeah. back? Uh, you know, yeah. are we going to have a, co- uh, you know, COVID 22? Um, yeah. Yeah. And all yeah. that I think comes so much down to the training. Like yeah. you said, making sure people understand exactly what they need to be, to Actually, be doing. You know, I guess one point I, I'd make too, Sue, is that I'm less concerned about charting by exception by a nurse than I am a doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is something that some of the lawyers that we've talked to over time have have, have uh, pointed out is that doctors tend to, uh, they really like charting by <laughs> exception, um, but they can get them into trouble, especially since some of the things that they're charting are absolutely critical. You know, if, if one of our nurses, you know, forgets to, you know, chart a, a, a positioning, it's got less of a consequence. It's important, but mm-hmm. it's got less of a potential consequence than the types of things that the doctor's charting. So. Well, and also being able to, like we said, you know, being able to customize it, because that was something else we had heard, mm-hmm. is that if the doctor's drop-down list was different than the nurse's, the nurse might chart, you know, yeah. one position, and it's called something slightly different in the doctor's, and then they don't match, and if there's ever, like, a legal case. So being able to... To make sure make all sure of that consistent. that is consistent yeah. is is sounds like it would be easy with you know that system. Uh, so I think the custom uh, customizability is that a word? Oh. Configurability. We'll say configurability. configurability. There you go. Yes. Is extremely important. Um, and to your point, um, we we see this a lot, especially with. Uh, older systems or with those crossovers. And there are some practice management systems that are out there that have an ASC module, um, you know, which they've, they've taken and they've created the ability to have a surgery center um, uh, attached to their, their practice. Uh, I, I will state that that rarely goes well in, in my experience. Uh, I mean, it might be easier for the staff to be able to do it because they have one system and one way of doing things. But unfortunately, those modules, I think, are often often weak. And to your point, they don't include things like materials management. They don't, which which is critical uh, to be able to do case costing. They don't include. Um, you know, things like credentialing modules too, which is not in your EMR module, but in your practice management module. So uh, all of those things are things that are very important when somebody's looking for a, a system. But but most critically, as you said, is making sure that you can configure that on the fly and not have to spend, it used to be $150, I think, you know, uh, an hour, but I'm sure with inflation, that's uh, well over that not right now. Yeah. Yeah. And again, Hey, I, I, you know, I was in the early days of working with electronic medical records too. And, and that was what you did. You had customized yeah. forms and we still remember it. And like you said, and then it would just take forever to get a change. And yeah, it was just, and again, I think that would get um, user fatigue. Like, ah, I want to change this form, but it's such a hassle. Then I got to submit it. Now I'm going to catch grief from the surgeon investors. I'll just keep it the same. Yeah. <laughs> I'll yeah, just document right. around it. <laughs> so I think I think uh, we see the, a lot out of that. By the way, talking about uh, longevity here, uh, congratulations! You told me before we started recording that you were entering your uh, third decade in the industry. So, uh, uh, I, congratulations! Or, or is that condolences? I, I yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. I don't know either. Again, hey, I love what I do. Um, I yeah. love what I do. I love the industry. Um, again, I oftentimes kind of looked, right. Hey, what else do I want to do? And I always come back to, I just love what I do. I love this specific nature of working in surgery centers. I love the fact that is a lot of entrepreneurs, independent thinkers, 
uh, being able to make changes so quickly and be able to do that. So again, I, I'm really, I really consider myself blessed to have been to now be entering my third decade, just finishing 20 years in this industry. And uh, yeah, I didn't intentionally find this industry kind of, kind of yeah. found me. I was working in the perioperative hospital space and I just had the opportunity to work. Uh, one of the hospitals I was working on, the surgeons were splitting off, building this beautiful yeah. new surgery center. And uh, I had the opportunity to uh, work with the surgeons when they were designing it and uh, help them with their IT infrastructure. So yeah, it's been it's been a fun ride. Yeah, well, congratulations. I, speaking of somebody that's entered, and thank you for pointing this out, uh, my fourth <laughs> decade in the industry. <laughs> but the same thing. We're just so passionate. But I think one of the things I, I I've I've said. Uh, maybe not so much on the podcast is what I like about this industry it, uh, it, compared to the hospital industry where, where I spent, you know, good decade, um, is that I can get my hands around it. You know, you can, you can understand everything about it. I think it's becoming more difficult now, but you know, you can see the whole episode of care. You don't have to rely on other departments. Uh, uh, you know, as a surveyor, I can follow that patient from the moment they walk in the door to the moment they go back out, you go out to their car. Uh, and we, as, as people in the industry or working in these surgery centers can see that also, which gives you a lot more control over the whole episode of care, which you just don't have, uh, in the hospital industry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I just, the, the hospital is, is this labyrinth that's really hard to navigate through. It's just so broad and and always growing. And like you said, you can't really get your arms around it. And the physician practice world, you know, having spent some time there too, mm -hmm. um, you know, as an administrator, I, I enjoyed that as well. I really enjoyed the intimacy of getting to see everybody every day on that. Yeah. But um, I, I still like the, the fact that the surgery center offers kind of a mix. It's an yeah. incredibly complex environment but still yet small enough where you can see that whole episode of care. Right. Let's talk a little bit about, because this is becoming more frequent too, is these, uh, these situations where people are transferring from one EMR to another. In other words, they've made a mistake. Uh, well, I mean, two ways this can happen. Maybe they went from paper to an interim system, such as a, uh, a system basically create, you know, you, there's systems out there, I'm not going to mention names, mm -hmm. since they're not sponsors, um, <laughs> that, uh, that you can print the forms off of, of the computer, and then they can, you can scan those forms back into the computer. Uh, they're not truly an EMR, but of course, everything is stored electronically. And you can sort on certain fields and you can be able to pull those forms up pretty easily. They're, they're wonderful systems, but it really is only a stepping stone. Uh, and then there's those other situations where people have purchased another system, an EMR system for the ASC, and find that it's not working, which unfortunately we've we've experienced a, a number of those situations ourselves. Do you want to talk a little bit about, yeah. about those scenarios yeah, and how, yeah, how yeah, you and navigate it? Yeah, and as and as the industry matures, we see more and more of that, right? We have yeah. people going from like you're calling it the document management systems. Uh, the, I don't even want to call it EMR light. I mean, it's it's just a storage yeah. system. It it it's eliminates the, it eliminates the need for paper storage, and you can archive it. But that that's where it ends. You can't do any data reporting or or any of those aspects of it. Run copy reports, case costing, all that stuff that we talked about. But yeah, when you have a solution like that, or you have an EMR system that you want to move away from. I think what's just important is that you just, you number one, you need to have those records, right? You need to retain those records for at least seven years, 18 with pediatrics. So you need to retain those clinical records. But what we're finding the easiest way to do that is just through PDFs, right? Because we don't have to be able to capture all that discrete level data from one system feed it into ours. It's just, it would, the level of effort would be so complex to be able to devise a system, be able to pull that data in. But if you think about it, when you even go from a paper system to an EMR, you still have these archived records that you need to retain. So in yeah. some ways, yeah, we just, as long as you can get that data into a PDF, right, your patient records into a PDF, then we can store that and we can archive that and, and attach it to the patient. So we routinely have it where, we'll have a patient that comes in and, and we have one record that's on a PDF from another system. They come in mm -hmm. maybe for a second visit, a repeat visit. So we'll pull that PDF document and then and then attach it or put that into the their medical record now as an attachment, right? So you mm -hmm. can still have that continuity of care and still have that historical longitudinal record of what happened previously in this for this patient. Um, but yeah. m you might not have all that discrete level data, which is just fine. And that's what we found is, is, is a really nice medium, but yeah, we're running into that more and more for sure. 
So another question I have for you is, as these organizations are starting to transition uh, to an EMR, they're going to have to choose somebody to be the person that spearheads that whole effort. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, who, who is best able to do that uh, in your organization and you know, whether, you know, whether to bring somebody in from outside and how they would interact with the EMR company? I think that's, that's critical because I think if you make the wrong decision up front as to who's going to be doing that, you could really set yourself up for failure. Yeah, yeah, and we, we run into that a lot. Absolutely, John, we see that a lot is that, um, and I'm not sure I can even say it's the role, right? Sometimes I'm going to say it's um, a surgical tech that's really engaged and has a lot of technical experience. Oftentimes it is a director of nursing that we'll see, but sometimes it's a pre-op, post-op manager. Again, somebody who's maybe tech savvy and just excited about the project, brings a lot of enthusiasm, um, yeah. has a little, has a lot of institutional credibility that, you know, the docs get behind, the surgeons really like, anesthesia providers really like. Sometimes it's a administrator, business office manager, it, it really, I don't want to say it has to be one certain role, but it has to be that one person that's really going to own it. Um, and then the other thing too, is not only having that one person, but just making sure you have executive support of the project. We've seen so many times that, you know, the, the, it's, it's, they're not easy, right? Some of these implementations are not easy. We're asking clinicians to say, Hey, go ahead and make certain that you provide exemplary patient care for eight hours a day. And then, oh, by the way, after that, find an hour to work on this chart build or this uh, new EMR build and be able to, you know, juggle these multiple projects at the same time and really multitask and, and uh, shift back and forth. So, so it's a challenge. So in these, these projects sometimes take longer than, than people expect. They don't allocate mm-hmm. enough time or enough resources to build this. So it's important to have the executive sponsor on this. And, and the other thing, too, is to really define an objective. This is what I've found to be successful is define an objective. Why do you want to go to this? Uh, mm-hmm. Why do you want to go to an EMR? Is it because, to your point earlier, John, is it, is it because you're going to save time? Maybe, but that's really hard. That's really kind of squishy to, to really measure. And then what happens if you save time? Are you going to eliminate staff? No, you're not going right. to eliminate staff. No. You're not going to eliminate staff on this. But is it because you want case costing information? Is it because you want to improve? your patient communications? Is it because you want to improve your surgeon relations? You want to make their interaction with the surgery uh, with the surgery center easier in the hopes of maybe you're going to increase your, your overall volume. Maybe they're going to bring you one or two more cases uh, a month, right? What, what, what are your objectives just to keep that in mind? Because it's sometimes tough to see, you know, the forest through the trees because you're looking at this of, we're so deep into the weeds. What was the overall objective that we started out with? So just kind of keeping that, keeping the executive support to keep these projects moving along and not le- losing the steam on that. And and then also is, um, you know, celebrate the accomplishments as you're going along. Hey, we've, we've got to the point where we were, we're able to deliver a case costing report. That's fantastic. Or we're able to, we've launched this for the, uh, ophthalmology service line. If you're going to launch it by different service lines, or you're you're, you're taking some aspects and celebrate that because a lot of times we're going to see that you know we let the you know the famous saying is you know, don't let be don't let great be the enemy or perfect be the enemy of good of you know what this this aspect is still not right where we need it like but. But all this, your surgeons are documenting on their on their smartphones. You're yeah. <laughs> you're able to get case costing. You're able to have these analytics. You're running all your copy studies out there, out of here. Yeah. Um, your anesthesia providers enjoy it. You do be their their pre screening of their patients. But 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 then you're focused on hey what what's still wrong with with the solution. So a part of it too is it's never going to be done. It's never going to be perfect. But kind of celebrate yeah. those wins along the way too, just to appreciate. Yeah, you know, what the team has done just to bring it the bring the solution that far. But it really is just having that executive sponsorship and identifying who really is kind of the key owner or who's the key driver. And sometimes it's uh, multiple people at the center. Yeah, that's a really good point. Probably a good one to end on is uh, is recognizing that that uh, implementing the EMR is not going to uh, end. Uh, you're always going to be mm-hmm. modifying it. You're always going to be improving it. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons that hopefully you're buying that EMR is that you're going to be able to keep it up and, and keep it uh, relevant in, in, uh, in our new world that we're living in right now, as well as all the changes that are occurring. I, I think, you know, one challenge I think we all have is that we, we're all running on very slim staffs now. 
Um, you know, where people are working extraordinary hours because we can't find staff. Finding leadership is a big challenge. Um, and, uh, and of course, our doctors are saying to us, uh, I don't have time. You know, I, you know, when we tell them that when you implement the EMR, you're going to have to add, you know, another five, 10 minutes to the case in the beginning as you're trying to get used to it. And they say, well, let's hold this off for another year. And, you know, when we have more time to do it, that's just never going to happen. Um, we're, we're never going to find ourselves in a situation where we have more time to do things. So uh, I think you're just going to, what's the, the term? I'm going to rip off the bandaid, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to have to rip off the bandaid yeah. at some point and just do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. So again, you have to, you have to make the commitment and remember your overall objectives of why you're moving forward with it. Otherwise, yeah, it's the projects that I see, the failed projects tend to lose steam and yeah. uh, mm -hmm. they get bogged down and, and we, and we see that a lot. Maybe you have folks out who can't concentrate this because of um, uh, rising COVID rates, or maybe they leave the facility and you lose your leadership on that. So yeah, we, we see all of that. And then, and then one final note too, that I meant to come back to that I, that you suggested earlier is just as we're looking through this too, in, in looking at the solutions and, and the, the one, the one key advice that, that, you know, that I would provide as far as not only selecting it is from a cloud perspective, right? We talked about mm -hmm. that before. And, and I did want to end with that because, you know, we're just seeing just so many incursions into data centers, into solutions that not all clouds are, the, are created equal. So when we're looking at this, one thing that, you know, as an infrastructure that we've invested so many resources on so many, so much time and so much money on is the security within our cloud. Um, and then I, I think of this now, I think it's relevant as I just went on Amazon to try and buy my, my masks, my certified mask, making sure I wasn't yeah. getting counterfeit ones. Like, how do I tell the difference? <laughs> so the gold standard that we have within the, within the cloud industry for EMRs is what's called a SOC 2 certification, SOC, SOC 2 certification. So that's a gold standard, not only of the data, the application itself, to make certain it stands up to the rigors of uh, hackers all over the world trying to penetrate the application, but also from your organization, make sure you have processes in place to make certain that, yeah, they're they're you're doing the best you can to prevent any of these incursions. So, those are those are the those that was the one you know parting tidbit and parting nugget that I wanted to kind of leave uh, leave the listeners with. As always, Todd, it's a pleasure working with you, talking to you, and uh, and uh, hopefully we've uh, given our listeners an awful lot to think about as we start the new year and start thinking about when when we're going to implement EMRs if you haven't done it yet so thanks for everything that you do and thanks for uh, thanks for your ongoing support of the podcast absolutely John Sue thank you too uh, really appreciate your support thank look you. uh, look forward to a successful 2022 absolutely mm -hmm. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff. So let's start uh, talking about some of the upcoming topics. Uh, and this list keeps getting larger. That we'll, we'll just talk about a couple of them, but we're still behind. We do had an interview with Scott Megason, who uh, we talked to uh, you know, about four months ago regarding uh, what to do when your coding or billing staff leaves suddenly. Uh, then we also are going to have a focus segment on ASC quality reporting and the changes in 2022, especially as we come closer to the reporting requirement. Mm -hmm. And then our annual review of the OIG report on the compliance of accrediting organizations with the conditions for coverage during surveys. Uh, that one will probably be our next episode within the next uh, week or next week. Yeah. And then we have our, our upcoming training programs and some upcoming conferences. The Iowa State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Center's 12th Annual Education Conference is April 8th and 9th at the Stony Creek Hotel in Johnston, Iowa. And I'll be speaking there. And then ASCA 2022 will be in uh, Dallas, Texas, April 27th through 30th. And I'll be speaking on a special track for ASC administrators. And for more information, of course, go to our friends at ASC Association at ascassociation.org. The New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Center's Spring Conference will be held May 10th and 11th in Saratoga Springs, New York. And uh, our ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camp is going to, the uh, May 2022 cohort is going to be May 24th and 27th. That is going to be done uh, virtually. For more information, go to ASCPodcast.com. We still have some slots available for mm -hmm. that. 
And the New Jersey ASC Association's annual conference is on June 7th and 8th. It will be held at the Hilton East Brunswick. John will be speaking on succession planning. And I believe Ann Geyer is going to be speaking there also. We don't, I don't know that we have a topic yet, but I know that they're in discussions right now to put her on the schedule. And also, don't forget about all of our recorded events. They're all available at ASCPodcast.com. We have a credentialing conference, a full-day conference, where we talk about the process of credentialing in an ASC. Uh, in the fall 2021, we had a finance and accounting conference. Uh, also in the fall 2021, we did the Conditions for Coverage Conference and Medical Director Conference. And our ASC Administrators Boot Camp was held in February, mm-hmm. uh, just earlier this month. Yeah. But the self-paced version of that boot camp is available on the ASCPodcast.com website. We do want to remind everybody, we've already talked about the one of the big advantages of our patron program is uh, being able to stop in on our uh, weekly drop-in sessions. But there's many other opportunities there to interact with us and to really, uh, you know, get a lot of additional information on uh, ambulatory surgery centers and the regulations here. So for more information about the patron program, go to ASCPodcast.com. And that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Galian. Please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. Sue, we're at 299 subscribers. I need one more <laughs> subscribers to hit that, uh, to roll over to 300. The sound editor for this episode is, as always, Sue, uh, Sue Cronkite. Executive producer is John Galey. Research assistance is provided by that wonderful team at AHS, Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike and Mike Noah. And the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on all of those major podcast channels, including Podbean. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. <laughs>